This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news. Coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. A panel of federal judges is warning Wisconsin to wrap up redistricting by next March. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the three-judge panel indicated today that state lawmakers should have new maps completed by March 1st. That deadline would allow candidates for the 2022 fall elections to begin circulating nomination papers by April 15th. Those maps would be used for legislative and congressional candidates for the August primary and November general election. Six of Wisconsin's Ojibwe tribes are suing to stop the state's fall wolf hunt. In a lawsuit filed today, the tribes asked a federal judge to rule that the Wisconsin Natural Resources Board violated tribal rights when setting the wolf harvest quota. The tribes write that the board, quote, failed to use sound biological principles in establishing the quota for the upcoming hunt, unquote. Last month, the Natural Resources Board voted 5-2 to two to set a 300-wolf quota for the hunt. That's more than double the 130-wolf quota DNR staff recommended. The suit names the Natural Resources Board and DNR Secretary Preston Cole as defendants. Nobody celebrates the end of summer quite like former Governor Tommy Thompson, who had surgery on Thursday after a water skiing accident the prior weekend. During a press conference, the 79-year-old Thompson said he got on the skis to, quote, give it the old college try, unquote, before summer ended. Thompson is the current interim president of the University of Wisconsin system, and it's unknown whether or not he understood the irony in that statement. The Associated Press reports that Thompson still plans to go water skiing next summer. Devil's Lake State Park has grown by about 80 acres. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the Natural Conservancy has finalized the purchase of 80 acres of forest that are adjacent to a separate 221-acre recent addition to the park. The new property, which will be open to the public, is located on the southwestern position of the 9200-acre park. A property developer and local historical preservationists have reached a tentative plan for preserving the Wonder Bar, a historic tavern on the city's south side. The agreement involves taking the bar and pushing it somewhere else. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the current plan would relocate the bar slightly closer to Olin Avenue. This building weighs an estimated 800,000 to 950,000 pounds. The initial plan was to demolish the bar to make way for an 18-story, $40 million mixed-use apartment building. That plan stalled after community members raised concerns over the Wonder Bar's demolition. And now, here's your daily COVID-19 news and numbers. The state's rolling seven-day average of cases currently stands at 2,967 new cases. That number comes courtesy of the state's Department of Health Services. Since the state began its $100 vaccine reward program last month, the GHS reports that more than 142,000 Wisconsinites have received their first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. Eligibility for that incentive has closed. If you received your first jab between August 20th and September 19th, you can submit your information to the DHS by September 30th to receive your reward. And that's it for the headlines. Before we turn to more local news, we have Austin Exum in the studio who wants to tell you something about the WORT Fall Pledge Drive. Good evening. My name is Austin Exum, and I am here in the WORT studios during our Fall Pledge Drive um, to ask you to donate in any way you can. 
um, to help us out. Uh, you as uh, listeners are our main source of funding uh, by far, and we are currently trying to raise money to get two new boards, um, which are about $80,000 each. Um, yeah, if you donate, we have some new shiny gifts uh, for our donors, including our brand new bumper sticker at the $25 level. Um, we have, and our brand new long sleeve vintage wart t-shirt um, at the $100 level. And if you go all out and donate $180, we have our WORT imprinted House of Marley headphones. Um, yeah, so I appreciate it. If you can do anything you can, um, you can donate at 608-256-2001 or wortfm.org. The Madison School Board met last night to discuss a change in their surveillance policy, including a proposed ban on hidden cameras. That proposal comes after a 2019 incident involving secret surveillance of students at East High School. WRT reporter Nate Weggehot has the story. Last night, the Madison Board of Education considered a potential change to their surveillance and electronic monitoring policy, which has not been updated in more than two decades. The change would prohibit the use of hidden cameras within all Madison Metropolitan School District buildings. And it comes after a 2019 incident in which some top administrative officials signed off on the installation of hidden cameras to monitor an MMSD employee. Those cameras were installed in a changing room for disabled students and a coach's office off a boys' locker room. The hidden cameras were approved by top brass at the district, but the presence wasn't made known to the then-interim superintendent, Jane Belmore, the school board, or East High School teachers, reports Isthmus. The school board, while discussing the potential policy change last night, notably avoided almost all reference to the 2019 incident, with board member Nikki Vandermeulen only making a passing comment on the matter. It's only come back to bite us twice so far. I'm not sure I want anyone to have permission to hide a camera. This is the second hidden camera case involving MMSD staff. Also in 2019, East High teacher David Crutchen placed hidden cameras in students' hotel rooms during a field trip to Minneapolis. Crutchen entered a guilty plea in the case last month, telling a judge that he became addicted to seeing what students were doing in their private moments. He now faces 6 to 20 years behind bars, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. While the two cases involve hidden cameras, they are unrelated. The new policy would also give MMSD Superintendent Carlton Jenkins final say in the placement of any new cameras in areas deemed, quote, not otherwise appropriate for camera placement. This also means that, though the cameras must be visible, the placement of the cameras do not need to be discussed with the school board, which made some board members, including Vandermeulen, wary of the plan. I think the board needs to know if a camera is going to be placed. I think we need to be read into it. I think it does affect policy because we're the ones who are going to be the ones that are going to take the blame if a camera is found. It's assumed that we do know. And in this situation, I think that we have to know. Sherry Terrell Webb, MMSD's general legal counsel, assured board members that any future surveillance cameras that may be installed won't be hidden. When I'm thinking extenuating circumstances, um, I 
the the definitions I'm thinking of are um, vandalism to school property, um, and then they're still not hidden, Nikki. We're not doing hidden cameras. All of the cameras will be visible. Some members of the board express frustration with allowing any cameras in school, whether hidden or in plain view. Here's board member Ananda Morelli on the issue. And I'm just going to be really honest. If if we cannot provide safe and supportive spaces for our students without cameras, we like, I don't know what are we doing? Like, I'm, I don't want to be a part of that, to be honest with you. I don't want to be a part of a school or a district that finds necessary monitoring and surveillance in order to to have a supportive learning environment. The potential policy change comes after repeated calls from community members for transparency from the school board about the hidden surveillance of students in the locker room office and changing room. Anna Hauser is a member of the Demand Dignity Coalition, a group of parents, teachers, and students who have previously pressed the district to open up about the case. Hauser says that they have not heard anything from the district about the policy change. What we really need to see is that transparency. We also need to see a cooperative effort where the board, staff, and families are all kind of you know, aware of what's going on. It, we shouldn't be surprised or finding things out in the news. And just in general, I think that transparency is, is a good thing. I think that that's something we've been asking for for a lot of years. Also at last night's meeting, the board agreed upon the language to be used at the vaccine mandate for all MMSD staff. The mandate will be voted on next week and, if passed, will begin to take effect on November 1st, a full two months into the school year. From WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggehout. This morning, two statues were returned to the grounds of the state capitol after a 15-month hiatus, and a third might be on the way. WORT reporter Carolina Bursian has the story. The two statues, of forward and of abolitionist and Civil War fighter Hans Christian Haig, are back around the Capitol Square. They've been out of commission for more than a year after being toppled and damaged last summer during ongoing police brutality protests and after the arrest of a local Black Lives Matter activist. After being restored by a Detroit artist, they're back for public viewing. Representative Amy Loudenbeck is the chairperson of the State Capitol and Executive Residence Board, or SCURB, which has overseen the restoration process. They shipped out the statues uh, about a year ago, and they did the, the casting, I know, of the Hans, uh, Colonel Hans Hegg's head, did what they needed to do to get uh, the statues restored and also to repair the damage that had been done and get them ready to be erected back on their bases. Senator Melissa Agard, another SCURB member, believes that the restored statues convey a new symbolic message. Me... It also is a reminder of why it was that they were taken down and the amount of work that we uh, as a society need to continue to do to ensure that Wisconsin is a place where everyone knows that they belong and that there is justice and equality available. Another outgrowth of last summer's protests is a movement to erect a statue of civil rights leader Val Phillips on state capitol grounds. That proposal was championed by community leader Michael Johnson, president and CEO of the Boys and Girls Club. Johnson told WORT yesterday that... The Velfield Statue is a website that we created to raise money. We've had over, I think, close to 500 people contribute uh, towards the campaign, and we raised over a quarter of a million dollars. Pretty amazing that we're getting this, this kind of support, but 
Uh, Ms. Phillips uh, deserved it. She was the first African-American woman in the country to be elected to a statewide office. First African-American woman to hold a uh, alder, uh, aldermanship uh, in Milwaukee. First African-American woman um, judge. And she mentored hundreds and hundreds of uh, young people in the state and was also the first African-American woman to graduate from uh, UW uh, Law School. Agard says the statue is a perfect fit. It's past time that we add diversity to the statues that are on um, the grounds of our state capitol. And um, Bell Phelps certainly is a trailblazer and I think is a is someone who is worthy of recognizing and um, the barriers that they removed and the work that they did in the state of Wisconsin. In July, a subcommittee of the board that manages the state capitol unanimously recommended to put a statue of Val Phillips at the capitol self-interest. The full state capitol and executive residence board is scheduled to give its final vote on the Val Phillips statue later this fall, along with deciding the statue's design and location on the Capitol grounds. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Carolina Bersian. It's now 6.19 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Before we turn to our next story, we want to check back in with Austin Exum, who wants to tell you a little something about WORT's Fall Pledge Drive. My name is Austin and I am back and we do have our first pledge um, from Curry Liz. Um, Liz's favorite shows are Local News um, and Melon Floyd, um, which brings me to a new point. (laughs) She wants to be called Curry Liz because she is currently making curry. Um, So anybody else out there who is also making dinner tonight, um, it only takes a few minutes. You can either call in at 256-2001 or WORTFM.org. You can follow Liz's footsteps. Um, Donors like Liz has helped us make uh, tremendous leaps in technology here at WORT, including our brand new WORT app. Um, You can listen anytime, anywhere, as long as you have Wi-Fi or cell reception. Um, Again, that is 256-2001 or WORTFM. .org, and I'm going to hand it back to Nate and Carolina with the news. Last week, former Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman sent an email to election officials across the state telling them to preserve data from the November 2020 election. Gableman is currently leading one of two investigations into the presidential election. The email, which was sent from the personal Gmail account of one John Delta, was flagged by many election officials, including the Dane County clerk, as spam and disregarded. Wisconsin's dueling election investigations, one led by Assembly Speaker Robin Voss and one by State Representative Janelle Branchin of Menominee Falls, have resulted in confusing and legally dubious requests of clerks, clerks across the state. For more, WRT producer Jonah Chester spoke with Dane County Clerk Scott McDonald. So how is your office handling these requests and the the emails from Mr. Gableman in regards to one of the states or one of the Republican-led investigations into the November election? Yeah, well, the, the email we got, which was from a Gmail account, and, and it was it was quite odd, to be honest. And my IT department um, recommended I not respond to the email due to security concerns. But it really didn't ask for anything. It, it just said, beware that we... You should preserve certain things from the election, and you know we'll you know don't delete them. And well, we wouldn't delete it anyway. 
So, um, you know, we, we would save all of those materials for the full 22 months as required by federal law. So in some ways, the, you know, whether it was from him or not, it doesn't really matter and 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 uh, doesn't change how we would do anything here. Would fulfilling those requests and any records that Mr. Gableman requested, would those inconvenience the county clerk's office in any way? Are those are those pretty handy and readily accessible? Well, it's it's not totally clear. I mean, the things he specifically mentions were like metadata and uh, audit logs, and and those items we secure behind a locked door and encrypt. So, no, I would not hand hand any of that over to someone outside of our chain of custody. I don't I don't care who it is. So, you know, we the the election is as you know as everyone listeners know are are recorded on paper ballots and those were inspected at a at a recount. We publish all of those images on the web. Those are publicly available to anyone in the universe. So, he can look at that all day long and then there's and there's other things from the election that that are are public records that anyone could look at, but what he's basically asking for is the passcodes to the servers, and we're not going to give any of that up. Now, in a video posted to YouTube, Mr. Gableman said that, um, quote, As the officials directly responsible for administering elections, Wisconsin's 1,922 county and municipal clerks have a duty to the people of our state to be forthcoming in this investigation. It is my sincere hope that Wisconsin election officials will live up to that duty. But if they do not, we will use the power afforded to the Office of Special Counsel to compel answers to these questions. Now, does that, that statement concern you at all? I mean, it doesn't frighten me. It's just very confusing in the sense that, so, to, so Janelle Branchin, who's the Assembly Elections Chair, sent out subpoenas to Brown and Milwaukee that were later deemed to be not legal subpoenas, but in part because Robin Voss, the speaker, wouldn't sign them. So this is sort of what Gableman's asking for, is the same things that Janelle Branchin asked for that Voss wouldn't sign. So I honestly, it's, I have no idea what he's actually ever going to ask for. So to say he, he can or can't have it, I have no idea. So essentially, this entire process is just, just a bit of a confusing mess in your view? Well, yeah, it's, it's designed to discredit the election, um, to serve Donald Trump, and to, you know, erode our democracy, and it's really confusing. On the subject of Representative Branchin, has your office received any notification from her office? As you mentioned, she specifically targeted Brown and Milwaukee counties uh, a few weeks back, but has Dane County received any type of correspondence from her? No, we haven't received anything. Are there any other, and you expressed it just a minute ago there, but are there any other concerns you have about this process that, that we haven't had a chance to touch on here today? You know, either that it, it attempts to discredit the November election results or anything along that line that you think folks should be aware of as, you know, news coverage of these of these investigations is ongoing. You know, the the the, the Bob Woodward book that just came out, I think it's called Peril, I mean, documented how close we came to the vice president or somebody else overturning the election results and trying to hand the election to to Donald Trump um, despite him losing the popular vote. And this is a continuation of that here in Wisconsin. And so, you know, we're one of a handful of states uh, that that is always close when it comes to these national elections. And so really people should be paying attention. There's an effort to normalize discrediting our, you know, the election if, if certain candidates lose. 
So, you know, a lot of the things that they're complaining about now or the, like Mr. Gamelgan referenced were true when Donald Trump won in 2016. And not a word was said about, for example, filling in the absentee envelope with uh, Madison, Wisconsin, if it was left off. That was done in 2016. There was a recount. But because Donald Trump won, it was fine. And following up on that thread a little bit more, is that a concern for you that, you know, going into uh, into the midterm elections or even looking out ahead to 2024, these kind of quote unquote forensic audits could become more normalized? Yeah, either that or just this effort to discredit it. You know, they, they have no ability to compromise on on changing the law. If they, they, there's in a, they don't even talk to each other at the Capitol. They don't talk to the governor. There's no way to sort of settle disputes. And what happens when that happens is, that, you know, it, it gets in this climate, it becomes dangerous. So they start to kind of weaponize their supporters. You know, I know that, that several clerks in Wisconsin, the city clerk in, in Milwaukee and Madison have received, you know, dozens and dozens of threats. That seems to be the trend. And of course, that has a terrible effect on who you who would want to stick around and, and do that. It it seems to have a sort of disturbing parallel to some of the vaccination things that are going on as far as nurses and doctors getting burned out uh, as well. So um, yeah, this is a this is really a test for our democracy and we're you know, I think we'll look back on this time to see what either you know, if things got better or they got worse. Mr. McDonald, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join me. I appreciate it. No problem. Scott McDonald is the Dane County Clerk. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Cardinal Call shares the latest news from the UW campus. Wildlife Weekly offers a warning about the hazards of bird vehicle collisions. And Radio Astronomy provides a brief history of studying the stars. But now we'll check in with Austin once again, then we'll hear some news from around the world. Back in a flash. Um, hello, my name is Austin. Uh, we are back here at the studio during our fall pledge drive. Um, our first pledge drive uh, back in studio since the pandemic, actually. Um, I have been a volunteer here for about a year. Um, I know, as all of us did um, last year, like we all found ourselves with a little more spare time on our hands. Um, and WRT was a great fill for that. For me, whether it just be listening to radio, the great news, all the fantastic talk shows, um, and for me, like volunteering, um, and we do ask for your support um, any way you possibly can, and you can give us a call to donate at 608-256-2001, or you can go online as well at wortfm.org. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful, here with Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us. Every other Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. 
This week, the Cardinals Hope Carnop takes a look at some recent pricing changes at campus dining halls and how it's impacting students. Hello and welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup, joined today by campus news writer Leica Kachoria to discuss how students are feeling about pricing changes at UW's biggest dining halls. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Hope. I'm glad to be here. So in the past, all except one of UW's dining halls have sold items a la carte, and now the two largest dining halls on campus have moved to an all-you-can-eat model. So what are prices like for this new system? So prices have now changed to a flat entry fee. We're seeing $4.99 for breakfast, $5.99 for lunch, and $6.99 for dinner. Um, And it's just upon entry, so each student gets there, they scan their whisk card, and they just take it out of their meal plan. Um, for residents, we're, for non-residents, we're seeing a little bit of a higher shift. We're seeing $8.31 for breakfast, $9.98 for lunch, and $11.65 for dinner. So what were some of the reasons that UW made this switch to an all-you-can-eat model? So I talked to someone from Four Lakes, um, an employee at the dining center there, and they said that they were extremely understaffed and they had some supply chain issues because um, when they do all their cutting of produce and they get their shipments from their vendors, they have to do a lot of coordination with Gordon's, their, the other dining hall over on the southeast side. And that all there kind of led to some, it, it was like kind of in, inefficient for the workers and I just think that this system is better for them. Um, it does speed up the process and helps out a lot. So you talked to quite a few students. It seemed like mm-hmm. some of them liked the simplicity of the system, right. um, but some thought that the prices were too high. So what did you hear from the students that you talked to? Um, so for the students that didn't like it, it was primarily because well, it was my reasoning as well, because they don't eat as much with, with the old system. They would be charged less for how much they're eating and they felt that that was fair. Um, and then for these other guys that are in favor, they really did like it because they would get heapings and heapings of food and, uh, you know, be charged for a flat rate and not have to worry about it. One of the girls that I interviewed um, that did like the new system, she really liked it because um, you don't have to worry about the pricing of, you know, healthier food anymore or um, different kinds of food. You know, you can just get whatever you want. You can go in and out. You can sit down, come back, whatever. Um, so I, I do agree that that's a very good thing because I was a little bit cautious of that as well. Um, you know, it's a little bit easier to get some fried food than go to the salad bar and it's a little bit more tasty, but you know, you know, I can get some, something of everything. Yeah. So for students who just want to stop by and pick up something that's prepackaged between classes, will there still be options available for them to buy it just as a separate item instead of the all you can eat style? Yeah. So there they would have to, um, all the prepackaged food has moved to either the bean and creameries, the flamingo runs. Um, I know Rita's Market, it has its own section. Um, and all the prepackaged food like sushi, which is a big popular one, some of the fruit, 
all the drinks, beverages, they've moved to there and then you can buy that as a separate purchase and it's all good there. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about your story. Yeah, of course. We're now talking with campus news writer Abby Bradbury about COVID protocols during rush week for Greek life. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Can you give an overview of some of the COVID policies that were in place for rush? Yeah, so essentially both the sorority and frat systems implemented a COVID test or vaccination record requirement, much like what the university is currently implementing. So for students going through recruitment, they either had to have a vaccination record in UHS or have proof of a negative COVID test in, I believe it was the past three days to be able to attend rush events. Um, Additionally, they're also requiring masks at all the indoor events, again, much like you'd be seeing in Dane County or at, um, you know, classrooms at school. So it looks like sororities implemented some additional precautions by holding some of those earlier events virtually. How is that different from in years past? Yeah, so last year it was all virtual for Rush, obviously, and this year they kind of did a hybrid format versus previous, previous years, it would just be all in person. So what they did is they had their first round be a video process where potential new members were sent videos from each chapter. And then those potential new members were also required to send a video kind of introducing themselves back to the chapters. And that was kind of the filter process for the first round, rather than having, you know, the hundreds of girls hoping to rush going to all the houses and meeting all the members like previous years before COVID. So they took that additional step to do the first round in a virtual format. And then going forward into the second round, they are doing Um, in-person house tours. And I think that that was kind of implemented just because the first round is when there are the most girls rushing. So this was a way to kind of cut back on potential COVID exposures since there would be hundreds and hundreds of people all intermingling in different houses and such. And then what were events like for fraternities? Did they have more in-person events right at the beginning? Yeah, so from what I heard, fraternities haven't been doing a virtual aspect to their recruitment this year at all. They're kind of going straight to right in person events. Theirs are starting later than sororities, but yeah, they're going straight to in person. Uh, a lot of the frats are having their first few events outside if possible, but I do know that some of them are also holding house or also holding events within their house or at other off campus locations as well. Yeah, it definitely seems too early to tell if there were any cases that came from Rush Week, if there were any, especially because so many events around campus have gone back to person. Is that kind of the sense that you get as well? Yeah, yeah, I think there kind of was a sense of uncertainty, especially from, or at least the sorority or the Panhellenic Association I talked to, they definitely had a backup plan in place to switch into an all virtual format if exposure started to become a problem. Um, When it came to fraternities, I didn't hear as much from them about what their virtual backup plan was if they indeed had one, because I think they're just kind of hoping that because of the precautions they're taking, the masks, the, you know, smaller groups and the outdoor events for many of them, they're hoping that that's going to kind of mitigate COVID exposures and hopefully not be a problem for them. So what stage of recruitment is happening right now and what's sort of coming next for students that are joining Greek life this year? 
So I believe the fraternities are kind of starting up their recruitment week in the next days coming forward. So that I think lasts for a week or two. Sororities have already completed their virtual round. They started, I believe, a week or so ago with that virtual first round. Saturday, I believe, is when the in-person round starts for sororities. And then both the sororities and fraternities will be continuing with in-person rush until I believe the last week of September when they have their bid days. Is there anything else you'd like to share about Greek Life's response to COVID and this story? Uh, I mean, it's good to hear for sure how responsible both um, the fraternities and sororities are being and how seriously they're taking it. I was able to get in contact with both the presidents of the Panhellenic Association, so the sorority association and the Interfraternal Council, and both of them seemed like they totally understood the gravity of the situation, and they understood that they're very lucky to get to be able to do this in person, considering Greek Life Rush is such a huge, huge event that draws in hundreds of students. So it is definitely great to see how serious they are, taking it as serious as the university is, if not even more, with those additional like testing requirements. It's good to see. I'm just wondering personally, you know, how the enforcement of that is going to go because they they have all these great requirements in place now. It's just with so many people going through the process, I think it'll be interesting to see how they go about enforcing it or what challenges arise with enforcing it. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking about your story. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com or download our app. You can also find links to our podcast, The Student Dive, on our website. This has been The Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. It's now 6.43 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Before we turn to our next story, let's check back in with Austin Exum, who wants to tell you a little something about the Fall Pledge Drive. Hello, my name is Austin and I am back here in the studio at WORT during our Fall Pledge Drive. Again, our first one back in studio. Um, As you might not know, WORT is all volunteer powered. Um, There's only a couple staffers here. We all do our best and give our time uh, out of our days to provide you with uh, the best news and talk shows and music shows that we possibly can. Um, And we do ask that you give what you can as well, Um, whether that be $60, $70, $20, um, $10, anything at all, we will accept it and will be greatly, greatly appreciated. Um, What you can do is you can give us a call at 608 Two five six two thousand one, or you can also go online at our website at wortfm.org. Um, yeah, again, anything is appreciated, and um, thank you. As the fall chill settles into the air, Wisconsin's migratory birds are beginning their annual journey south. But that trip is fraught with peril, as our avian friends contend with buildings and traffic along roads. This week on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg teaches us how to avoid bird vehicle collisions during the migration season. I got some news to tell you. Oh, 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 
Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Training Supervisor for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be talking about high risk to mortality in wildlife during the fall migratory period. Now, this could be any migratory period, the fall or the spring, but since we're in the months of September and leading up into October and November here, our state is going to be filled with so many birds that are coming through our area, um, heading from the northern parts of the Arctic or Canada through our state and then down south for the winter. So we are in what is called the Mississippi Flyway. It is probably one of the most crucial flyways in North America for birds that are basically following the Mississippi River um, as maybe a geographical location to be able to get their way south. So I wanted to talk about some of the highest risks to mortality during this time period. And I know we've focused a lot on window strikes, which is definitely in the, the top five for sure um, of the highest risks of mortality to birds. Uh, but I wanted to focus more on vehicle collisions this time. So birds that are hit by cars. Um, I want to say that for our wildlife center, uh, hit by car is probably for us top two, maybe top three. Um, and I could definitely show a lot of data to back that up for all of our birds and, and also mammal species. But when we're talking about migration, we're thinking about birds that are flying along a route that maybe is different from the year before. Uh, maybe the traffic patterns have changed from year to year, uh, especially as humans ourselves um, are doing a lot of things like construction and landscape modifications. It's not always going to be apparent to them, you know, a bird may be living somewhere between uh, anywhere from one to 20 years, uh, or maybe a bird that only has a lifespan of a couple of years is going to get used to a specific route that is learned actually from their parents or their siblings over time. Uh, and as that changes, then it poses, I would say, a higher risk to them if it's a type of species that might be uh, closer to our roadways or maybe flying at a height that's closer to our roadways or the same height as our cars or vehicles. It's it's a really big deal, although, you know, it's, it's interesting because it doesn't pose as big of a risk to uh, humans as maybe some other species. So when I think of deer, you know, in Wisconsin, we have a very high uh, number of deer that are hit by cars every year. And that very large carcass is going to cause a problem for traffic where, you know, from a safety standpoint, people can have to swerve to avoid the deer carcass. The deer is obviously large enough to cause really significant amount of damage to your car. Um, so what about birds? Well, I think of birds that are the highest risk as being the large birds that are slow moving and they have a hard time getting up off the ground. So this high risk to mortality happens, especially in our waterfowl species. Uh, so geese and ducks and uh, some specialty birds like great blue herons. Our wildlife center actually has admitted a couple of great blue herons in the last few weeks just from hit by car injuries. Uh, and we also see raptors. We've had multiple turkey vultures that are coming through on migration that have been hit by cars. Um, and so, you know, those larger big bodied birds, you know, they're not going <laughs> to have an easy time being able to just shoot right off the ground and go straight up in the air. Um, aerodynamics and their body size really plays a huge part into their wing loading capacity and how they're able to take up off the ground. Some birds like loons need an entire lake to be able to fly up off the ground, which they're never really on the ground. They're on a body of water. They're only on the ground for nesting. So, you know, species like that, again, very at uh, high risk of being hit by cars or being grounded during this 
time of year, especially along those flyways or uh, areas of great importance here in our state. So uh, for the state of Wisconsin, um, as you're traveling, especially through Thanksgiving and maybe even into Christmas, uh, keeping in mind that as you're traveling on major highways or major roadsides, you know, be on the lookout for certain species at certain times of the day. So for our waterfowl species, definitely early in the morning as they're just getting going. Uh, a lot of times at that dawn and dusk period is probably the highest risk for most of these animals to be hit by cars and for drivers to be less attentive. Um, so, you know, you're just waking up and getting your coffee and you're tired. Um, you still be really vigilant when you're on the roadsides watching for low flying birds that could hit your car. Um, be probably on, on a greater lookout if you're following routes that would be um, in some of our uh, areas of conservation importance. So for us, uh, if you're traveling along the Mississippi River um, or the Wisconsin River, which would run from Prairie to Sac all the way down to where it meets the Mississippi River, um, those are probably two of the most prominent ones in our area. And so many waterfowl, um, you know, uh, hundreds and thousands, if not millions of birds are going to be migrating through in the next uh, two months here. And did you know that of those birds migrating, about 80 million of those birds are going to get hit by a car this year? That is a really sad number. And so, you know, it's part of the reason that us as wildlife rehabilitators exist is because those 80 million birds are being hit by a car and that person is going to find it and not know what to do with it. Sometimes that bird will die on impact, which is really, really sad. Um, even as rehabbers, we see those cases where they have been hit by a car and they come in and within that first 24 hours, just the amount of trauma that they've incurred, sometimes even rehabilitation and intervention doesn't even help. Um, it's a very tragic and very hard thing for us uh, to, to work with, uh, which is why we're, you know, trying to educate people about the risks to those birds. So reducing your uh, carbon footprint and not going out on the roads, maybe not driving as often, is actually probably a good thing for avian conservation. Although we still have other impact traumas, this is one way that you could potentially reduce yours. So, uh, you know, if you travel, um, maybe choosing a different way or doing virtual travel. I think COVID actually helped a lot in this last year because people were traveling less, which means we saw less animals hit by cars. Um, but now that people are out again and people are starting to go places, you really have to be on the lookout to make sure that we're being aware of those species that could be impacted more often than others. If you have any questions, give us a call at 608-287-3235. And otherwise, this has been Wildlife Weekly. For eons, humans believed that we were at the center of the solar system. And admittedly, in many ways, pe many people still believe that. This week on Radio Astronomy, crew member Melissa Morris walks through the first few centuries of the study of astronomy and how close observers of the heavens arrived at the concept of a heliocentric solar system. Ever find yourself sitting and thinking about our place in the universe? Don't worry, you're not alone. Welcome to a Radio Astronomy, folks. My name is Melissa Morris, and today I'm going to talk to you about the history of the universe. Or should I say the history of what humans thought our universe was? It turns out that's actually really complicated because, well, there's a lot of humans all across the world who had a lot of thoughts on the matter. So we're going to go on a whirlwind tour. 
Now, people like to say astronomy is one of the earliest and oldest sciences. After all, the sky has always been there and human beings have always been gazing upon it in excitement and wonder. Patterns have been made of stars in the sky all across the world that told exciting tales about things going on. But what did people think about what was going on in the heavens? What did they think was out there? One of the earliest and most well-known recordings of any kind of model from our universe comes from ancient Greece, from Aristotle and Plato in the 4th century BC. When they gazed upon the heavens, they noted the moon, the sun, and some planets that all moved relative to the stars that lay far beyond those. Seeing this, they devised what is known as the geocentric model for the universe. In this model, the Earth is a sphere and is at the center of the entire universe because why wouldn't it be? We're here. Everything else, the moon, the sun, the planets, and the stars, all orbit around us in perfect circles. Aristotle and Plato's model was fairly straightforward, but didn't do a great job of describing the motions of the planets. So, a few centuries later, in the 2nd century AD, Ptolemy thought, this model is neat, but I should try adding a few things to it. While he kept the overall idea behind the model the same, he added some small details that tried to account for things like how the seasons change and did a better job of modeling planetary orbits. He admitted that his model was primarily mathematical, but that it did a decent enough job of predicting orbits, so it was widely accepted. In fact, geocentrism actually came in handy. While we now know it's not how our solar system is structured, Ptolemy's model provided a basis for a few important discoveries. Islamic astronomer Al-Batani used Ptolemy's model to carry out a series of incredibly precise measurements in the 10th century AD that rivaled those of European astronomers that they would make nearly five centuries later. He was cited by many astronomers such as Copernicus, Brahe, Kepler, and Galileo. You see, Albatani was able to determine the length of a solar year to accuracy within 2 minutes and 22 seconds using the geocentric model. He was also able to finally explain annular solar eclipses, eclipses in which only part of the sun is obscured by the moon. However, not all Muslim astronomers of the 10th century AD were on the same page as Ptolemy, for there was one huge disagreement. You see, in Ptolemy's model, the Earth was entirely stationary. Ptolemy worried that if the Earth was rotating, there should be really big winds, right? However, astronomer Al Siji proposed that the Earth rotates along its axis, and many other astronomers of the time agreed with this model. This led to competing models to Ptolemy's, many of which came from Muslim astronomers in the 12th century. However, the basic idea of a geocentric universe was still widely accepted and unchallenged. That is, until the year 1543, when an astronomer by the name of Nicholas Copernicus published his work that introduced the idea of an entirely different universe, one in which the sun is at the center and the earth and all the other planets orbit around it. Thanks for listening to Radio Astronomy, folks. This is Melissa Morris wishing you a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. 
Your reporters tonight were Nate Weihout and Carolina Bersian. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Jonah Chester produced this newscast. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish Language News with Enrico Patio. But we're going to check in with Austin one last time before we go. Good night and keep those pledges coming. And we are back. This is usually the engineers in the background, the guys you never hear of, because we're manning the dials and twirling the switches, moving the sliders. Uh, Dave Lawrence in here with uh, Austin, and uh, we are asking you to pledge for this show, the 6 o'clock news. Uh, we bring you local stuff every week, and uh, I think you like it. So get, uh, you know, shoot, shoot a couple bucks our way. And no amount is too little. No amount is too much. Austin, what do you got to say? Um, yeah, I just have to, we have one donation so far. Um, right. If we could get that up in these last couple minutes, that would be great. Um, again, it only takes about 30 seconds to get it in, um, and that number is 608-256-2001. Or as well, you can go to our website, wortfm.org, and anything you can give, uh, we will gladly take. And it is very easy to do. We haven't had an online pledge since 3 o'clock this afternoon. You know, I, I pledged myself uh, a couple days ago for, uh, I guess it was last Thursday, for, for Steve's uh, jazz show on Thursday afternoon. And, uh, man, it took me like, uh, I don't know, a minute, two minutes? Super easy. And, uh, yeah, so what I did is I had to cancel my, my health club membership because of COVID last year. And I donated the money I would have spent on that to, to WORT because they helped my mental health uh, where, instead of my physical health. We've got about 30 seconds, Austin. You want to finish up here? Yeah, absolutely. Again, um, the number to donate is 608-256-2001, and our website is wortfm.org. Um, I am a donor myself. Uh, we are both volunteers. Um, we pledge our time um, to... WRT and to this community uh, to give you guys great shows, um, great news, and if you can uh, like to pledge your anything you can give uh, for us as well, um, we would greatly, greatly appreciate it. Again, that is 608-256-2001. Thanks, Austin. You're listening to WRT 89.9 FM, your listener-sponsored community station in Madison, Wisconsin. Coming up next in Nuestro Patio.